Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. And as you know, we are continuing our series entitled Exiles. As many of you at home are probably maybe busy and around going to get your cup of coffee or maybe you got that before worship, I want to just kind of get our hearts zeroed in for a moment. If, would you please join me in a word of prayer as we get ready to open chapter 2 in the book of Daniel. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you, whether it be recorded, whether it be live, whether it be in person, I solicit, Lord God, just your holy name. I call upon your name, and Lord God, we cry out for your help. Lord God, whether there is a crying baby sitting on our lap, Lord God, or whether there is uh, something else going on in our homes, Heavenly Father, for those of us that are engaging with you in your word during this time, we ask, oh God, that you would just help our hearts to, to be free of distractions. Give us grace, Lord God, whether we're multitasking and it's just some elements of it we can't get away from, but give us grace in this moment, Lord God, to get everything you've intended for us out of the word that we are going to explore today. We need you, oh God. Um, we need you because uh, we've always needed you, but there are, are unique things happening in our culture today that uh, we need to be equipped to effectively understand and also to walk through. And so, Lord God, help us to hear from you, ground us in your word, and give us the uh, equipment we need to advance the gospel and to glorify your matchless and holy name in these uh, times where we are today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said before we started praying Gospel Hope, we are in the book of Daniel in just the second segment of our series entitled Exiles. Last week you heard from Pastor Ryan as he walked us through kind of the opening chapters and introduced us to Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, um, Lord, and, and just and some other characters whose names you may struggle to pronounce. And uh, you're probably going to struggle to pronounce some of the names in the text today, but there's one name that you shouldn't struggle to pronounce, and that is the name of the Lord. And so before we get started with chapter 2, I want to give you a high-level overview of these 45-plus verses of the story that is unfolding here in Daniel chapter 2. There are four major movements in the story of which the Lord is always the star. If you read these stories and, and you see the various celebrities and heroes of faith like the Daniels and etc., by all means, celebrate and observe what God is doing in their lives, but by no means let the largeness of the work that God is doing through them obscure your view of who the real star of the story is. And the star of the story in every book of the Bible is always God himself. And so I'm going to give you kind of four major ideas to walk through Daniel chapter 2 to appreciate the Lord as the star of the story. So the story begins in the first few verses of telling us that Nebuchadnezzar the king has had a dream. But not just any type of dream, a dream that has actually robbed him of his sleep. And as a result of this dream robbing him of his sleep, he solicits insights from his cabinet, essentially. The Chaldeans, uh, the magicians, the enchanters, uh, the sorcerers, and etc. Those that he has access to within arm's reach to gain wisdom. He asks them to come and to interpret the dream. And they are unable to interpret the dream, and it creates a crisis. And this is the first movement I want you to recognize is that, number one, layer one, God the Lord kind of curates a crisis. I use the word curate and not create because I'm thinking about what uh, a curator does in a museum. The pieces already exist, and the curator just kind of arranges them in a way that produces the right result for those that are viewing it. And so here in Babylon, the Lord has 
curated somewhat of a crisis in the life of Nebuchadnezzar because he's got this dream that is so intense in its detail and potentially in its meaning that it is robbing him of his sleep and he call on his wise men to interpret that dream but they are unable to do so. As a result, the crisis continues to escalate in its temperature because Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious and says, to those who are called to interpret the dream, that if you, these magicians, these encanters, and Chaldeans who are also known as astrologers, are unable to effectively interpret my dream, then I will have each one of you torn from limb, limb from limb. And I, you will be destroyed, you're gonna be killed. And because the Chaldeans and the other cast members there who are called to interpret the dream are not able to do so, they go to the king and say, hey man, no man can do this. What you're asking is above our pay grade. The kind of insight you want, which is you want us first to not only interpret the dream, but to actually tell you what you did dreamed, we can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, well, we're just going to kill everybody in your job category. Well, guess what? That includes Daniel and his companions as well. So when the captain comes to uh, the area where Daniel and his companions are living, Daniel wants to know what exactly has created this great urgency. Why is it that you're trying to kill all of the wise men and the magicians that are, that are in the king's court? And of course, Arioch, which is his name, tells Daniel why uh, the king is so angry. And Daniel says, well, wait, give us an appointment or an opportunity to meet with the king, and maybe I can tell him the interpretation of the dream. And so Daniel, at that point, goes into his prayer closet and to his partners, his four buddies, and he says, listen, we, I need you go to go and pray and solicit the mercies of God that he would tell us the mystery, this thing that is happening in the king's heart. And so the Lord reveals it. And so the first one is that the Lord curates a crisis, but then the Lord also is the star of the show here in this second major movement of this story because the Lord shows mercy to Daniel and his companions, and he reveals the mystery of what the king had dreamed. So Daniel goes before the king and shares with him the revelation of God and what God has shared with him about his dream. Nebuchadnezzar is deeply impressed, and this act of mercy of God both saves the lives of all these other wise men as well as sends this great message to Nebuchadnezzar of who the real king is. You see, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't had a formal official introduction to the true God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, the God of the Hebrews yet. But through Daniel and his, and his companions, he was about to get that introduction. And so after Daniel faithfully interprets the dream, the dream's interpretation actually has some content directly from God where the Lord, as his third movement in that dream, reveals that he is the one who is really the highest Lord, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings over all kingdoms, regardless of how advanced or how expansive the kingdom of Babylon might be. After that, Nebuchadnezzar is drawn to a place of deep conviction, falls on his knees, and actually pays homage to Daniel and also to the God of the Bible and says, your God is the one true God. Nebuchadnezzar then promotes Daniel, promotes Daniel into a very high position, puts him over all the other wise men in the region, and then Daniel solicits favor that his three friends, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, would also join him in very privileged positions. And that's kind of where the story ends. 
But there is much for us to learn than just the fact that God can give folks gifts to interpret dreams. I believe that there are some crucial nuggets for daily living that we can apply to our lives right now from this very ancient story. And that's what I want to help us to kind of walk through. But before I get there, I want you to take a look at your screen and tell me if you notice any of the people on that team. How many of them can you name? As a matter of fact, would you go ahead right now and I want you to do two things as you're typing in the comment section. Number one, can you name the team? What's the name of the team? You can enter that right into the comments. I'll give you a few minutes to do that. And as you uh, put in the name of the team, because I'm pretty sure you can see other people and what they're typing, I want you to type in the names of the people that you see there. Can you type the names of the players? Do you know who those folks are? You know the members of that team. Go ahead and enter those now. Give you a chance to kind of run over to your computer if you were in the laundry room, kind of changing, you know, putting in a load of clothes. Hopefully you can hear me back there. Maybe if you're at the sink washing dishes, give you a chance to get your cup towel and uh, dry your hands off and come over to the computer. I want you to type in the names of as many of those players that you see on the screen that you can possibly get. You got that? You're probably seeing some of them come through in the comments now. Well, who are these guys? Well, first and foremost, this is the 1992 Dream Team. For those of you who don't know who they are, this is this incredible team of deep basketball talent, the best of the best that was available in all of the NBA that was called together and gathered and called the Dream Team. But they didn't just come together for any old reason. The Dream Team was amassed to represent the United States of America in the 1992 Olympics. And as you can imagine, as they went into the Olympics, they destroyed every team that was before them. They greatly raised the world's awareness of the deep bench of talent that we have for basketball in the United States of America. Not only did they raise the world's awareness of this deep bench of talent, but they also, from a, from a missiological standpoint, began to recruit or cause many other people from all over the world to want to come and play basketball in the United States. This is the original dream team. Well, today, I want to talk to you about another dream team. That is a team of people that the Lord used immediately in Babylon, namely Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Abednego, to actually interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. And this dream team, much like the one you see on your screen, was intended not only to advance their name, or not their names at all, but to collectively come together and advance the name of the one true God that they represent. You see, not only are Daniel and his companions a dream team, but I believe we too are a dream team. We are a team of people, that is, in the church, individually gifted, just like many of these men you see on the screen, individually gifted in our own right in very superlative and awesome and wonderful ways that the Lord has called together, the ecclesia, the ones that he has called out of all over the place into this day and time to assemble together and to go through the world and to declare the goodness of our God that through our collective gifts, what the world ought to see through us, the modern day contemporary ecclesiastical dream team, is that the world should see through our collective lives a witness of the awesomeness and the goodness of God that is advanced to all nations. That is the role and the job of the church. That was the role of Daniel and his companions, and it will be the role of the church and has been throughout all time. 
I want you to just kind of soak in this for a moment. For those of you who may be um, a little bit feeling defeated or anxious, fretful, exacerbated, whatever your negative sequence of emotions are, I want you to consider for a moment that if God really is sovereign, that the season of life that you're in now, the exact ethnicity, gender, age, pay grade, neighborhood, all of these particulars have already been anticipated and even curated in the heart and mind of God. You are right where you're supposed to be. You are to be a Christian at this particular day and hour because the unique circumstances that exist in our nation is the backdrop against which God wants to show you, the members of the dream team, or through us, what he wants to do in the world. And so, I don't know how many of you got all the names of the guys that were on the screen there, but just to help you out, I'll run you through them, just in case you missed them. There are Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Chris Mullen, Scottie Pippen, uh, David Robinson, uh, John Stockton, Clyde Drexler, and the only college player on that team was Christian Leitner. That was the dream team. That's all 12 of those names, the people that you see on that screen. That's the dream team. So you can look there in the comments and see if you got all of them. Again, double-checking your list, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Chris Mullen, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson, John Stockton, Clyde Drexler, and Christian Leitner. That was the United States Dream Team. A group of people who are individually great in their own right, but brought together to do something even greater than what they could do on their individual teams. I want you to think about that because you and I are the Lord's Dream Team. We were built for this. These times and these details and these things that we're going through today, we are built for this. Now, what do I mean we are built for this as this dream team of God? Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open me, uh, open them with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be moving uh, through these 45 or so verses kind of methodically, but remember the first movement that I told you where the Lord was the star of the story? And I said to you that the Lord allowed or curated a crisis? That's our first point is that the Lord uses crisis to actually develop convictions. Why does the Lord curate crisis? The Lord uses crisis to develop convictions. How and where do we get that from? When you look at these first 11 verses in chapter 2, I want you to consider what's happening in verses 2 and 3. It says here that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and they stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So the king is troubled, but no one could tell him the, 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 the meaning of the dream. No one could tell him, not just the meaning, they couldn't even tell him what the dream was. Now, at this point, the Chaldeans went back and forth with the king and said, we would like for you to at least tell us the dream. But the king got angry and said, no, 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 you're just trying to buy time. Because if I tell you the dream, you guys can kind of collectively filibuster and give me various details and wait for the times to pass. But in this moment, we see the Lord has curated this crisis for a very particular reason. And I want you to know that the Lord will curate a crisis in our lives too. Don't be afraid of that. Sometimes we're not the Daniels of this story. We're the Nebuchadnezzars. You see, in verses 2 and 3, we need to recognize that even the best of human wisdom is less than God's wisdom. That's one of the core convictions that comes out of this story. Because the Chaldeans, the, magi the, the magicians, the sorcerers, and the encanters, I want you to think carefully about what you learned from chapter 1 when you consider their role. Remember, 
It was the standard operating procedure of conquering nations to go in and once they sack another nation like they did with Judah, to take the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the most bright, the most intelligent people from those nations that they conquered, bring them into Babylon, re-educate them, and to assimilate them into their nation to improve their strength and prowess. And so when we talk about this cast of Chaldeans who were astrologers who looked up to the skies, magicians who depended on the dark arts, these enchanters who were maybe mediums and all these other sources, they all represented four very abhorrent sources of wisdom that the Lord told his people in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 31 to never solicit, to never go after alternative means of wisdom, to always come to the Lord. And so you have all four, not just four different types of wisdom that Nebuchadnezzar has access to, but you had better believe that these guys represent the best of the best of what the regions all around have to offer, because Babylon is the raging, raging world power at this point, and if chapter one tells us anything, these guys represent the best magicians, astrologers, enchanters, and sorcerers from all the surrounding lands that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered, and none of them are able to to answer this question. And so God will do that not only in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but he'll also do it in our lives. You see, during times of crisis, we are, we are brought to a point of seeing what is most critical in our lives. What are our critical resources? What have we gone to depend on other than the Lord? Or what do we depend on if it's just exclusively the Lord and how do we depend on him? And so the Lord uses a crisis to help develop convictions. And the first conviction is even the best human wisdom is less than God's wisdom. But there's another level of wisdom and another conviction that I want you to see. Each one of those roles are different. The enchanters, the astrologers, the magicians, and the sorcerers all have different specializations. And we too in our lives have different specializations. Maybe you feel it's particularly strong because of your educational background. Maybe you feel particularly strong and advanced because of your ethnic background or because of your education or because of your career and your experience. But the Lord in crisis will sometimes render all of those things to be absolutely useless, not because they are inherently bad, but because they have become something that we have depended on instead of him. And so in this moment, we kind of stand in the role of Nebuchadnezzar when you think about the nature of what a crisis does. Our nation is currently in a crisis. We're regularly faced with enigmas and things that we can't solve and figure out. And this is all part of God's plan to draw people to a place of having accurate convictions. And so the convictions are that the best human wisdom is less than God's wisdom. The other conviction is that the greatest human prowess is less than God's power. But there's another conclusion or conviction that even those members of Nebuchadnezzar's court come to, and I want you to see this in verse 11. In verse 11 of chapter 2, uh, Daniel says this, The thing that the king has asked is difficult. These are the Chaldeans talking back to King Nebuchadnezzar, who has asked them to tell him his dream first and then to later interpret it. The thing that the king has asked is difficult. No one can show the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. These gentlemen have spoken more accurately than they know, and this is one of the core convictions that God wants to bring out in all of our hearts, but specifically in these guys' hearts in this moment. And so even the best wisdom is less than God's wisdom. Even the greatest human prowess is less than God's power. But here's another one. Even the most formidable of leaders will be faced with their need for God. 
I want you to take that not only as a lesson from this book, but I want you to consider all over the Bible how the Lord, when his people are anchored or find themselves within one of the world powers, that the Lord works his way up, whether it be a Pharaoh, or in this case, whether it be a Nebuchadnezzar, or whether it be in the days of Christ, always works his way up to the top so that he can showcase that even the most formidable of leaders have to face their need for God. This is the kind of conviction that I believe the Lord not only wants to be wrought in the lives of believers, but he also wants that kind of conviction to, be, to, 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 to come through in a nation. And that's why the Lord curates a crisis so that whole nations and individual people can see their deep need for God. They may never articulate it as their need for God. They never may discover it as their need for God. They never, may never realize it's their need for God. But crisis is designed to draw us to the end of ourselves so that we can see our deep need for God, regardless of how great, how powerful, and how formidable any one of us might be in our respective levels of expertise. I believe it can be said of both the individual life and also of our lives nationally as Americans this, in any nation this is applicable to, the Lord will stick a pin in anything we depend on besides him. The Lord will stick a pin in anything we depend on besides him. He will show us just where our weaknesses are with just the slightest and the smallest element, something as tiny as a pen prick. I want you to consider that in your lives the next time you're working through a crisis. As a matter of fact, when you're working through a crisis in your own individual life, your first response should be, Lord, why you? Not, Lord, why me? Feel me on this. When we encounter a crisis, ask the question, Lord, why you? rather than asking him why you. What do I mean by that? In other words, with every crisis, if the Lord is curating certain and convictions in our lives, that means that there's a certain conclusion of his power, his might, and his ability that are unique to him that he wants us to discover. So it is very appropriate in every crisis for us to throw our hands up and say, Lord, why you? What is it that you want me to see about you? What do you want me to know about you in this moment that is unique to this crisis? So when you encounter a crisis, throw your hands up and say, Lord, why you? Why are you the unique solution to what I'm going through? Why are you the unique solution to what's happening in our nation right now? Why you? Not why me, but ask the Lord, why you? Why you? As in why him? Does that make sense? I hope it does, beloved. Uh, consider this, what it says here in Psalm uh, 124. Um, if, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side uh, when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. This is one of the great refrains of Israel, and I believe it should be one of the great refrains of all the people of God's hearts. Lord, if it had not been for you, that's why you, if it had not been for you that was on our side, whatever came against us would have swallowed us up. And this is the place where God wants us to grow in our conviction. So remember this, the next time you encounter a crisis, it is designed to cultivate in us, in you, in me, conviction. When we think about this current um, season that we're in, you know, we're just a few days out from the election and you have never heard from this pulpit and never will you hear from this pulpit direction on who to vote for. The Constitution tells you to go right on ahead and vote for whoever you like. But you know what the Bible tells you? It says that you need to pray earnestly for whoever is leading. 
So I don't care who you vote, how you vote for, pray earnestly. With the same energy that we are talking about voting and getting out there and trying to drive change, with that same energy, no matter who wins, I want you to pray for your leaders. Vote for who you like, but pray for whoever is leading. And this is why we want to do that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, here is the conviction. Here's why that should be one of the convictions that we adopt during this time of crisis. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that they may lead peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I want you to hear that again. First of all, he urges that we would have supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in high positions. I mean, it is the full menu and the merry-go-round of intercession. Supplications and, and, and petitions going before God earnestly on behalf. Let me tell you something. If your favorite person gets in office, pray like your life depends on it. If your least favorite person gets in office, pray like your life depends on it. Why? Because that's the kind of conviction that the Bible calls us to. So we are a people who live by a different constitution. Vote for whoever you want to, but the Bible calls you to pray for whoever is leading you and to pray earnestly with all kinds of prayer. This is the kind of conviction that our current season of crisis should be curating or cultivating in our hearts. Let's take a look at verses 12 through 30. Because after we see it clear that the Lord has curated this crisis that creates a unique moment for Daniel and his friends to step up to the plate, this is when it starts to happen in verses 12 through 30. Uh, the Bible tells us here that because the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Pay attention, careful attention to verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard. I want to pause here and just kind of give a nod to my man, Ryan McCammick. I don't know if you remember last week's message that there were three major points that we needed to have resolved and we needed to have regard. That is to move with a certain level of respect even toward those who we may not like. Did you see the regard just kind of oozing out of that text? Here comes a man to kill David and his friends. And the Bible says in verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why uh, is this decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested that the king appoint him a time that he might show him the interpretation of the king. Now, immediately after this, in verse 17, what David does, or excuse me, what Daniel does immediately there in, in, in verse 17 is he, he recruits and calls on his three friends and says, I need you guys to pray for the mercy of God that he would reveal the mystery that is haunting the king. This major, second major point is this. The Lord uses minor players to make major impacts, right? So the first one being the Lord uses a crisis to develop, our, uh, to develop uh, uh, convictions. The Lord uses minor players to make major impacts in the world, right? So here comes the emergence of the dream team, if you will. Daniel and his friends uh, are the least likely candidates to come in and interpret the dream. Do you know why? Now, if you haven't listened to last week's message, you're going to need to to enjoy this and to appreciate this. But in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, 
The Bible tells us that when Daniel and his friends were brought in to be assimilated and name changed and fed wine and all this other kind of stuff, the Bible says that they were entered into a three-year program, a three-year program to learn the, the ways and the wisdom and the knowledge of Babylon. Now, the Bible tells us at the opening of chapter 2, what we are now, that Nebuchadnezzar was in the second year when all of this is going down. So one of two things is true. Either Daniel and his companions are only in the second year of their learning. They're not even finished with their training, so they're the least qualified of anybody to stand before the king and interpret a dream because they've not had the education and the wisdom, right? Or they have just finished the program, and it's the third year of the program, but in, but in any way, they are rookies. They are rookies. They are the least likely candidates to come in and to do this work. God is setting the stage. I want you to understand that Daniel and his friends, while they are rookies, uh, there's something else that Daniel does that I believe is a careful and methodical, practical thing that we can learn from them. Remember how in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, I showed you how Daniel moved with discretion and prudence toward the man who was about to kill him? But not only did he move with discretion and prudence, but there's a, a couple of ideas that I want you to see very clearly. clearly. Daniel was curious. He asked Ariok, what is the buzz about? Why are you so urgent? What is going on? He was curious rather than critical. Something else happened also. When he turned, after he heard that the king had this enigma, this mystery that he could not solve, Daniel hadn't talked with his three friends yet. And he said, Ariok, will you tell the king that I'd like an appointment with him? So he not only was curious versus critical, but he was also available versus afraid. I want you to consider that he was available. He didn't move immediately in fear. He made himself immediately available to the king's service. He had a conviction and a confidence that he would be able to go before the king and intercede in this matter and work out this matter. This is awesome. But then I want you to know what happened in verse 17. I want to read it to you because I skipped over it before. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy of God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And guess what the Bible says? It says the Lord answered that prayer. And so the three boys together, the four men together, four guys together, they were curious, they were available, and they were prayerful. In verse 17, we see these guys are prayerful rather than panic when they heard what Daniel asked them to do. Let us collectively seek the mercy of God that he would show us this, show us this mystery, and there would be mercy for us and and all the others who are about to be killed. I want you to take note of that because it's really crucial that during these times of crisis, times of non-ideal circumstances, that we learn what attitudes and what actions we need to be taking. And I hope you see those three, curious, available, and prayerful. Is that our attitude or is our attitude marked by being critical, afraid, and panicky? Is that us? You see, I, I, take a look at what happened after the Lord answered the prayer of the four Hebrew boys. The Lord revealed the information, or he revealed the nature of the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel moves with worship toward the Lord and listen to his worship in verses 20 through 23. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might and change and who uh, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is uh, in the darkness and he lights uh, excuse me, and the light dwells with him. 
To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and now you have made known to me what we have asked. You have made known to us the king's manner. This answered prayer results in worship. This posture, this heart posture of being both curious, available, and prayerful has yielded great results during this time of crisis. The Lord makes major impacts through minor players. You and I are not off the radar, or we might be totally off the radar to some of the biggest players in our nation, the biggest players in our city, but if we will be a people who are curious, prayerful, and available, the Lord can work through us in incredible ways. And I want you to notice something. When, wh I, the question is, why do I need to be available? The reason that I want to be available is because God wants to show his power through the very people to whom he has shown his power to. You so for believers, the Lord has already shown his power to us, how he is able to save, how he is able to answer prayer, how he comes through in the clutch. And the Lord not only wants those to be our private, personal testimonies of how God comes through in the clutch, but he wants those of us to whom he has shown his power to, he also wants to show his power through the rest of the world. He wants to use us as instruments. These are his testimonies that should go out. And so look at Daniel's posture before Nebuchadnezzar in verses 27 and 28. So he finally has this audience with, uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, um, are you able to make known uh, to me the dream that I have uh, dreamed and it's I've seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered, listen to this very carefully. Daniel answered the king and said, no, wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what he will do in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you have laid on your bed are these. And so he begins to share with him the details. Now what's awesome and powerful about this is notice how Daniel constantly defers credit to the one true God. He isn't trying to self-promote. He isn't trying to position himself as one of the great wise men. He isn't trying to find his, his name uh, on the walls or on the roster of magicians, enchanters, and astrologers. He says no one can do this amongst any of the gods that you serve, but the God that I serve can, the God of heaven and earth. He can reveal mysteries. You see, the Lord wants that same heart posture in us where he can work through us powerfully and trust that when we get in positions of influence to speak to those in power, that we will give God the credit and not necessarily ourselves. This is not a unique uh, theme in the scriptures. Consider, if you will, how the Lord works through minor players to make major impacts like this in other places in scripture. Gideon and his 300. If you know the story from the book of Judges, Gideon was, the, was a member of the smallest of the tribes and he was the least in his household. He was a minor player. The number of men that he had with him was only 300, which was grossly below the total number of soldiers needed to go out into battle, but they won because God was with them. Jesus was mirrored, uh, uh, while we considered Jesus to be a big deal, his contemporaries did not. Jesus was regularly railed as, can any good thing come out of the town where Jesus was from? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus was considered to be a minor player, and his 12 disciples were not the most academically elite. They were all saying, aren't these unlearned men who Galileans who hang out with Jesus? 
So Gideon and his 300, a small minor league group who had major league impact in Israel as a judge. Jesus and his 12, considered to be minor amongst many of those during his day, but his 12, again, have turned the world upside down, the carpenter and his unlearned companions. But then who else is this other little minor league dream team that the Lord is pulling together? The Holy Spirit and us. The Holy Spirit, the invisible partner of the Trinity that no one sees and that no one takes seriously and that never takes any credit for himself but is always deferring glory back to the Son and to the Father. It is the Holy Spirit and us, the insignificant, unpopular Christians of modern America. We are the new minor league dream team that the Lord wants to work through to do great things in this nation and in our world. The Holy Spirit is in, invisible and we as Christians are largely unpopular. But why does God want to use us? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 25 through 27 answers the question. It says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So God has always been about building a dream team from minor league players to go out and have major impacts in the world. You and I are part of that dream team. Regardless of how small and obscure you may consider yourself to be, when partnered with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have incredible impact on our world. And it's not that we just can have it, we are called to have it. This is the work of God. This is the call of God to, to advance in the world the knowledge of who he is and how he wants to relate to man. This is our call. Looking now at verses 31 through 45, the final point of this message. Not only has the Lord used a crisis to develop key convictions, not only does the Lord use minor players to make major impacts, but when we walk through the interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, we also recognize that the Lord uses the rise and fall of, king, of kingdoms to reveal the need for an eternal king. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you pay careful attention to it, tells a story of this massive structure, a statue that is comprised of multiple types of metal and stone. And these different types of metal and stone are being crushed at different moments because they all have inherent weaknesses. But before we get to that point, I want to point out what something that is said in verses 36 through 39 as Daniel is interpreting the dream. You, O king... Uh, this is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. In other words, Daniel acknowledges that this Babylonian king, this pagan, this man who is virtually ungodly, it is God who has sovereignly placed him over the other kingdoms at this current time in world history. At that current moment in world history, Babylon was the bee's knees. But Daniel says, it was God who put you in that position. The first thing that we learn from Daniel's dream is this, that every kingdom is distributed by God's will. will. I don't care how you feel about America. I hope that you are thankful for the places where you live. I don't Whether you consider yourself to be a patriot or whether you consider yourself to be a critic, one thing that you need to know is that every kingdom on the face of the planet is distributed by God's will. The prowess, the power, the nature, the might, all of this is part of the providential allowance of God. It is the Lord who distributes power or distributes kingdoms at his will. 
But the, the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar also informs us of something else when we look at it in verses 40 through 43. The kingdom not only is distributed by God's will, but the kingdom is also, these various kingdoms, are destroyed by their own inherent weakness. As Daniel goes through and interprets the dream in other places, he talks about how each piece of the kingdom is made of different types of metal or stone. And as a result of what they're made of, they crumble under certain kinds of pressure. So not only is the Lord the one who sovereignly distributes the kingdoms and the power, but it is also the Lord who reveals the fact that each kingdom will be destroyed or crumble under its own weakness. Every nation in this world, every nation throughout history, Every empire throughout history has its own inherent weaknesses. And by virtue of those weaknesses, they will fall in some way, shape, or form. But why is God doing this? Well, in verses 40 through 45, there is an aspect of the dream that is told to Nebuchadnezzar where there is a stone that it could not be carved out by human hands that comes in and serves as the one that would rule and that would reign. In verse 45, just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it took the pieces, it took, uh, it broke pieces uh, and broke in pieces of iron, bronze and clay and silver and gold. So all the precious metal that was featured in this uh, dream. The great God has made known to the king what he will do after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. The God of heaven, listen to verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And so every kingdom is distributed by God's will. Every kingdom is destroyed by its own inherent weakness. But every kingdom's weakness is a witness that there is a better coming king. Ladies and gentlemen, you sit back, you look at the television, you flip through the news, or you go through your social media, wherever you get your news, you are regularly exposed to the inherent weaknesses of your nation. Every weakness of our nation is a witness of why we need an eternal king. Every weakness of our nation is a witness as to why the world needs a king. Every weakness that you can identify in any other nation is a witness as to why we need an eternal king who is not soft, who is not malleable, who will not crumble, who cannot be conquered. This is the message of the, 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 the mystery and the message that was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God himself. And ladies and gentlemen, we are living campaign posters for this eternal king. That's right. If there's anything that my life ought to be oozing with, it is the, the promise and the advertisement of the eternal king and the great work that he has done in my life. That's whose t-shirt I should be wearing with the way that my life is lived. We are living campaign posters for the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? You see, Nebuchadnezzar was gripped by a great mystery that only God could resolve. But the Bible tells us about another mystery and that there's no greater mystery than this. It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. You see, the greatest mystery of all is how could a holy and a righteous, omnipotent, and all-powerful God desire to come in and live amongst men? Remember the original conviction of the Chaldeans? 
Oh, king, the thing that you're asking for is too great. Only God can give that and he don't dwell amongst men. Well, God does dwell amongst men and he did dwell amongst men, manifested in the flesh, seen by angels, justified by the spirit, and then was preached among the nations, or preached amongst the Gentiles, believed on in the nations, and was resurrected from the dead. You see, our lives should be advertising the campaign slogan of Christ. And that is his campaign slogan, that he was manifested in the flesh, justified by the spirit, uh, seen by angels, uh, uh, preached amongst the Gentiles, believed on in the nations, and raised up in glory. That's our campaign slogan. We are anticipating the revelation of the great mystery of godliness. It has already been revealed in Christ. It is the mystery of the gospel. The gospel tells us this beautiful story of a God who has decided to come in into and set up a kingdom amongst people, with people, and amongst men and women who are fallen and, and, and broken. But yet he would show up our own weakness by his will and through his own power. The Lord is building a kingdom for himself, a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Well, now, are we so kingdom-minded that we are of no earthly good? What use is this campaign slogan? What use are these ideas today? It is our job, like the great dream team of 1992, in the way that we come together and play, not that we would get any individual credits or accolades, but that we would showcase to the world what it looks like when God pulls together a dream team, a people endued with his spirit, with his gifts, with his talent, with his abilities, that come together like the, the, the Hebrew boys did and pray for the mystery of God to be revealed and pray for the mercy of God to be shown and then to promote that message amongst anybody that would hear them, even as high up as the king of Babylon, that is the king Nebuchadnezzar. It is the job of Christians to be the dream team, to, 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 to thrive under crisis, to walk away from crisis with clarity and conviction. Let me, let me ask you this question. Do you notice how Daniel, you notice how Daniel, after he and his friends had prayed, received from God the, the, the interpretation of the dream, you see the, these, nice, these nice words of worship that he wrote there, blessed be the God forever and ever, uh, who is be, who, to whom uh, belongs wisdom and might, and he changes times and seasons, and he removes kings and sets up kingdoms, and he gives wisdom to the wise. Did, did, did you, I want you to just notice for a moment that people who spend time in prayer, both for and about, the nation for and about, the leaders for and about the mysteries that are in the world, people who deal effectively, who are, who are curious rather than critical, people who are prayerful rather than panicky, people who are available rather than fretful. Notice the outcomes of that, that Daniel got incredibly clear on who his God was, not necessarily more articulate in what his fears are. I say that to you because is that where you stand today? When you think about the crisis that rests upon our nation, are you becoming more articulate in your fears or are you becoming more clear on who your God is? That is a, that is a determinate factor in whether or not you're being curious, available, and prayerful versus fearful, fretful, and critical, right? Are you clear on your fears or are you clear on your God? You need to be clear on who Christ is. You need to be clear on who God is in light of these times. In light of these times, who is God? How clearly is he making himself in light of protests? How clearly is he making himself in light of all of the political wrangling? How clear is he making himself to you in light of uh, the particulars of the pandemic? The crisis that we have before us is designed to drive us to a place of conviction. And here it is. 
I want to give you just a couple of points of application for this week. Points of application. I want you to pray for the next week. Join me, if you would, pray for the next week for four sitting political leaders. And I don't care how you feel about them. Hopefully you would choose some that you can't stand or that you don't like. But four sitting political leaders. I want you to apply the very conviction given to us in the scriptures that we would move with supplications, with petitions, with intercessions, and with prayers and thanksgiving made for all people, for kings and people sitting in high places. Would you pray for, not just about, don't pray, not just for and about elections. I want you to pray for sitting leaders. And I want you to pick four of them and pray for them for a week. Through that, through that modality, intercessions, prayers, intercessions, right, uh, 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 as well as Thanksgiving, right? But then I also want you to do something else, and this one's probably going to be a little bit more difficult. When it comes to your social messaging, I recognize that some of you may not be on social media, so maybe this is a text message that you get from these various people trying to encourage you to go vote. I know I'm getting tons of these. I get two and three of them a day of somebody texting me, uh, either let me know what John Ossoff did and receiving money from China or how much he care about Hollywood celebrities. I'm always getting text messages uh, telling me to go vote and when I can go vote and do all this kind of stuff. I want you in your social messaging. for Could, could you do this for a week on your, in your Facebook status? If you were a Facebooker, would you do this? Would you post what you know to be true about God rather than what you think about Trump? Post what you know to be true about God rather than what you think about Trump. Can you do that? Can your heart do that? But post what you know to be true about God rather than what you, what you think about any given political leader. Could you just do that? I, I, I'd love to see what happened in your heart. If you're praying and then you're posting in a way that reflects what you know to be true about your God rather than what you think about any given administration or person, okay? And then, uh, you know, and that's in your social messaging. If somebody send you a text message, would you lead with, uh, what, hey, I, pr I pray for, uh, regardless of who it is, I pray that the Lord's will would be worked out in our nation. Would you do that? Would you, would you, would you change the game as a minor player, make major impacts in what's happening in the social media world by not joining in the endless stream of garbage that is constantly being pumped out, but would you inject some gospel and some conviction into the end, again, the endless flow of information that's coming in and out of our phones and out of our laptops? Would you join me in that in application? Trust me, you may not think it's going to have a major impact, but you let God handle the degree of impact. Let us, as the minor players who are unpopular and somewhat invisible, just get out here and speak as people of conviction rather than people who are carried away in crisis. And so um, that's my word for us today. I hope um, that your hearts are warmed. I hope that you have grown in new appreciation for Daniel and the great work that God did through him. And Daniel, as a result of that, he got promoted. But let me tell you something. That promotion is a part of God's platform to do greater work in the land of Nebuchadnezzar. If you're getting promoted and moved into positions of greater influence, it ain't for you. It's not just about your paycheck. The Lord will bless you and do all that kind of stuff. But trust me, positions of influence and places of impact, the Lord is moving the dream team there so that we can be interpreters of the times and cultures and help our nation see the gospel in light of all the other garbage that is in the room. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your great work uh, that you do through your son, Jesus Christ, beginning first with us. And now, oh God, that you have done this work in us, do greater work through us. We beg and pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.